just a quick question. I wonder if there are any of you who do not have one of these flyers, any of you adults down through high school, if that be the case, would you raise your hand and one of the deacons is prepared to uh, quickly give you one? Thank you, brothers. Anyone else? We did well today. And while they're doing that, I just want to um, tell the pastoral students that I spoke to last week about possibly meeting this evening early before the evening service. We will not be doing that. Next week is a far more appropriate time. I think it's next week. We're having table talk. So no meeting tonight, brothers, uh, if you happen to be one of those that I talk to. Please turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to read for us very quickly the Apostle Paul's contrast between what human nature produces, what the flesh produces, what our fallenness produces in contrast to what the Holy Spirit produces in our lives once we are born again. Starting with verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. This is what flesh, sinful flesh, unchanged by the grace of God produces. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, Now, I want you to think about these next words in terms of relationships and our own own behavior socially with one another. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Now he shifts into another category drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They're not going to make it to heaven. But, by way of radical contrast, the fruit of the Spirit, this is what the Holy Spirit produces as fruit in the lives who have the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. Now I want you to think again relationally in terms of how we behave in our relationships with one another. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And this is the key word for my purpose this morning. Gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have, not ought, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Last Lord's Day morning, I attempted to answer the question, the what question. What is humility? And in doing so, I submitted the following definition. True humility is an attitude and behavior that reflects a continual dependence upon and submission to God as our creator, provider, and redeemer. It is also a joyful recognition that the gifts, graces, and usefulness of others are superior to our own. It meekly acknowledges that anything truly good in us is entirely due to the grace of God And that the way we are treated by both God and man is far better than we deserve. And a simplified definition last week was looking upon God and others highly and on ourselves lowly. Humility is sweetly relinquishing our desire and effort to be God. That's another definition. It's getting out of the God business. It's dethroning ourselves. It's killing our self-deification. But if true humility is feeling our insignificance in comparison to the majesty and glory of God who is measureless 
in all of His attributes, everywhere present, all-knowing, all-powerful, if true humility is feeling the reality that He is the Creator and we are the creatures, if true humility is feeling our absolute dependence upon God and others to even exist and to stay alive, if true humility is feeling our utter sinfulness in the light of God's blazing holiness and justice, if true humility is feeling that even our righteousness is as filthy rags, if true humility is feeling that our perfect and eternal forgiveness is based entirely upon God's pure grace and mercy, if true humility is feeling that whatever strengths or talents or usefulness I have are not only gifts, are our only gifts from God. If true humility is feeling that in many regards our strengths, talents, and usefulness are inferior to those of our brothers and sisters. If true humility is feeling that our love for God and our knowledge of Him and His Word are terribly inferior to what they ought to be. And finally, if true humility is feeling that our present degree of humility <clears throat> is way too little in comparison to what it should be, and that we are not only way too proud, sometimes we are even proud of our humility. If, dear people, true humility is feeling these things and living accordingly, if these are some of the things that humility is, then the where question must be asked and answered. The what question is, what is humility? And now I'm saying, if that's what it is, then the where question must be asked. What is the where question? The where question is, where does such a grace find its origin? Where does it originate? Where does it come from? If I were to use uh, a Puritan form of that question, and I've been reading a number of the Puritans, it would probably sound like this. From whence doth this grace proceed? If you like that, write that down. Well, <clears throat> first of all, I want to tell you two places that it doesn't come from. I want to start with two negative answers. Where it doesn't come from, first of all, is human nature. The fact is that no one, by nature, is truly humble. Truly humble. There may be found in some of us a kind of outward sort of meekness or gentleness that restrains us from being loud-mouthed or forward or quick to speak or quick to criticize or quick to retaliate, a kind of bashfulness or passivity that naturally causes us to take a back seat or may even naturally cause us to serve others. But dear brothers and sisters, that is not to be mistaken for true humility. That's just personality. That's just common grace. That's just perhaps genetics. That's perhaps just cultural. That's just the fruit of our upbringing. So, non-Christians, for these kinds of reasons, can appear to be humble. They can appear to be even Christian. But they're not. And if you happen to be characterized by some of these things, don't be too quick in concluding, well, then I have humility and I must be truly a Christian. That's the first place it doesn't come from. It doesn't come from human nature. Human nature cannot produce true humility. And secondly, true humility is not merely a subduing of our spirits through religious experiences, impressions, or even manifestations of divine judgment that could be caused by a general work of the Holy Spirit. 
<clears throat> that was a long sentence. <clears throat> Excuse me. I don't want that to be um, complex. I'm simply saying that we are capable of having religious experiences, impressions, close calls with the judgment of God <clears throat> that in some way or form or fashion are accompanied in a general way by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. We're capable of having those kinds of experiences. And wow, they bring us down. Who do they bring us down quickly? It might be a terrible accident. It might be a sickness. <clears throat> could be the loss of a job. It could be many things. And we feel like we've been profoundly humbled. And in an outward way, perhaps we have. But that in and of itself is not a sign of true Christian humility. <clears throat> the Bible is filled with examples of people who had such experiences. Pharaoh is such a man. Once he said to Moses early on, Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. And then partway into the plagues, he's heard to say this, Moses, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people. And I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And then a little later yet, he said this, Moses, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right and my people are in the wrong. And finally, after the tenth plague, he said, up, go, and other things. And then he concluded with these words. And Moses, bless me also. Was Pharaoh truly humbled? Did he experience the humility that accompanies true conversion? Of course not. We know what he turned around and tried to do. Only hours later. But you see, he was having a confrontation with God. He was having religious experiences. He came into very close proximity with the judgment of God. Probably within his own household. And it subdued him. And it produced an outward kind of humility. But it wasn't saving humility. Think about King Saul. King Saul, we don't believe, was truly converted or born again. And after he disobeyed the will of God, mediated through Samuel with regard to sparing some of the Amalekites, he said to Samuel when he was confronted, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please, Samuel, pardon my sin and return with me worship the Lord. Was King Saul Genuinely humble? No. It was coerced. Did he appear to be humble? Yes. And later, toward the end of his life, when things were really desperate, he consulted with a medium, and she, in God's sovereign permission, was able to somehow, shall we say, call up Samuel from the dead. And, and Saul received a horrible message from Samuel, a message of utter doom. And we read when Samuel spoke to him, Saul said, it says he fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear. And there was no strength in him. Was he savingly humbled at that point? No. And the illustrations go on and on. If I had time, I would take you to King Ahab, who apparently repented and was made humble, but wasn't genuine. Or we could think of Judas Iscariot weeping and hanging himself. No, that's not true humility. Human nature can't produce it. And often superficial religious experiences don't produce it. And with regard to this latter, I do want to read again some words of Jonathan Edwards. This is the only quote that will be of any length, and I just plead with you.
to try really hard to grasp this. The challenge is, I'm reading a profound theologian who lived in the 1700s. I'll try to pause and make some of these statements clear. Jonathan Edwards is contrasting two kinds of what he calls humiliation. One he calls legal, and I think he means by legal the kind of humiliation that can be produced by God's law and God's wrath and God's terror and God's awesome attributes. You can have a confrontation with those things and it will produce something in you. And he contrasts that with what he calls evangelical or we could call it gospel or we could call it saving humiliation. Listen. He said there is a distinction to be made between legal and evangelical humiliation. The former, legal, is what men may have while in a state of nature and have no gracious affections. Listen, no gracious affections. The latter is peculiar to true saints. The former is a form of common influence of the Spirit of God assisting natural principles and especially natural conscience. The latter is from the special influences of the Spirit of God, implanting and exercising supernatural and divine principles. Legal humiliation is from the mind being assisted to a greater sense of religious things as to their natural properties and qualities, and particularly of the natural perfections of God, such as His greatness and terrible majesty, which were manifested to the congregation of Israel in giving the law at Mount Sinai. The latter evangelical saving humiliation is a sense of the transcendent beauty of divine things in their moral qualities. In the former, a sense of awful greatness convinces men that they are exceeding sinful and guilty and exposed to the wrath of God as it will convince wicked men and devils at the day of judgment. Think about that. Do you think wicked people and the devils who cry out for mercy and flee to the mountains to fall upon them are savingly humbled at that day? No. And Edwards is saying that kind of humiliation is a very real and possible experience in people's lives. And they must not on the count of that say, then I'm a Christian. The nation of Israel quaked at the foot of Mount Sinai. How many of them were truly humbled and saved that day? Those days. He goes on to say, but those men and devils do not see their own odiousness on account of sin. I'm just going to pause for a moment. Maybe maybe since this quote is long, it's good to pause here. Last week, God humbled me in a small, tiny way. This is insignificant compared to the way I need to be humbled. But I, with great authority and clarity, defined odiousness as something that smells horrible. And I compared it to smelling some putrefied animal on the side of the road. That's what odiousness means. And I spoke it with great authority. And one of my fellow pastors came to me sweet and he said, Where did you get your definition for odious? Do you think it's, it means bad smell because it sounds like odor? I said, Yeah. Isn't that what it means? No. No. But I spoke with such authority. And it's like God says, I'm going to humble you a little bit here. Don't be giving out definitions unless you know what you're given. Odious just means hateful. It means repugnant, repulsive, something that's very offensive. It doesn't have anything to do. It could be smell, but it doesn't mean smell. And, and now if I can bring you back, Edwards is saying this. He, he's saying that the people who quake and shake in judgment do not see their own odiousness on account of sin. They do not see the hateful nature of sin. A sense of this is given in evangelical humiliation by a discovery of the beauty of God's holiness and moral perfection. In legal humiliation, men are made sensible that they are nothing before the great and terrible God and that they are undone and wholly insufficient to help themselves as wicked men will be in the day of judgment. But they have not an answerable frame of heart. I want to underscore those words. An answerable frame of heart. they got something up here in their noggin. They have nothing in their heart. It hasn't changed their disposition. It hasn't changed their attitude. They just understand some stuff. They don't have an answerable frame of heart. And to the extent that you think you know what I'm talking about, what Edwards was talking about when he said a 
suitable or an answerable frame of heart. I, I interject this applicatory question. You who believe you are truly humble, do you, do I have an answerable frame And he defines that in this way, consisting in a disposition to abase themselves and exalt God alone. This disposition is given only in evangelical humiliation by overcoming the heart and changing its inclinations by a discovery of God's holy beauty. In legal humiliation, the will is not bowed nor the inclination altered. In evangelical humiliation, they are brought voluntarily to deny and renounce themselves. In the former, they are subdued and forced to the ground. In saving humiliation, they are brought sweetly to yield and freely with delight to prostrate themselves at the feet of God. I apologize. That was a long quote. This week I timed it and it took me three minutes. And it may have taken a little longer because I paused. I don't like to give quotes that long. And I'm sure you didn't all get it and none of us got it all. But do you understand what Jonathan Edwards is saying? Let me just really break it down. He's saying you can be humbled by God and not have saving humility. You can come under some kind of horrendous exposure to His awful holiness and justice and come near to His judgment and it will bring you down, but it won't change your heart. The devils believe God is holy. James tells us that the devils tremble when they think about the attributes of God. But do the devils love the attributes of God? Do they say beauty in the attributes of God? Has it changed the hearts of the devils? No. And so, in answering the question, where does it come from? I have to say to you, first of all, it doesn't come from human nature. And secondly, it may not come from religious experiences. And I don't want a single soul in this room or in the overflow room or listening to us on the Internet and watching to say, well, I think I've got saving humility because I remember when I got really, really, really scared. And by the way, I'm also the kind of person who doesn't talk a lot and I try to serve people and I'm, I'm sort of gentle. Don't put your confidence in some kind of artificial understanding of what true humility is. That's all I want to say about what it isn't. So, let's come to the positive answer. Well, just generally speaking, where does humility come from? This is the where question. We have the what question. Where, where does it come from? Okay, here's the answer. It comes from God as a gift when He saves us. Is that complex? Where does true saving humility originate? It comes from God as a gift when He saves us. Let me put it this way. In order for God to save us, He must first make us humble. He must first get us lost. He must show us how undone we really are. We will never come to Christ until we see and feel our sinfulness. Until we discover our plight. A plight is a fearful, horrible condition. God doesn't save anybody without taking them through that process. And then once we humbly come to Christ, you know what God does? He spends the rest of our Christian lives making us more and more and more humble. In making us more And more and more like our Savior, who described Himself with these words. He said, come to Me, learn of Me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. Where does true saving humility come from? It comes from God as a gift in our salvation experience. 
He first shows us how desperately we need to be saved from our sins. He shows us His holiness and His justice and we begin to see our plight and we cry out, Where shall I flee from the wrath to come? And we cry that until through the help of the Holy Spirit and the precious Gospel that we were reminded of this morning by Justin when he talked about the two contrasts, until we hear someone say, Flee to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's where you must flee. Go to Christ, the ark. And only there will you find protection from the flood of His judgment. That's how God makes people humble. He saves them. And part and parcel of His saving work, part of the essence of His saving work is to make us Humble. Think about faith for a minute. You say, well, I thought salvation is just coming to Jesus Christ by faith. It is, but why? For what? For salvation. From what? From the wrath of God. For what? For my horrible sins. How do you feel about your sins? I hate them. I fear them. How do you get saved? And if you understand the Gospel, you say, by Fleeing to the Savior who lived a perfect life in my place, who died for me. It's by casting the entire weight of my soul upon Him. All of the laws that I've broken, which bring me under the wrath of God, He kept. He's made a perfect atonement for our sins. Flee to Him. Look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And faith is a looking away from yourself. It's a repudiation of yourself. And it's fleeing to Jesus Christ and trusting only in Him. Dear people, can you conceive of a saving faith that is not humble? Can you conceive of a saving faith that doesn't repudiate your own righteousness and flee from your sins to Jesus? Faith itself is humble. And faith remains humble in our Christian lives. As long as we look away from ourselves and other possible saviors to Jesus, we are humble. So, how or where does this humility come from? It comes from God. It's a gift. And it comes to us in the saving experience. Now, how does it actually happen? Well, first I want to just say something to you theologically, and then I'm just going to show you how it actually happens in our experience. Now, I turned us to Galatians. You may have been wondering, why did you turn us there? Well, because I wanted you to see that gentleness, verse 23, which is very, very akin to humility. It's not the exact same word, but it's a very closely related grace. You can't be gentle without being humble. You can't be humble without being gentle. These social graces, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, where do they come from? Even a child knows, because verse 22 says, but the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit produces fruit. Boys and girls, children, the Holy Spirit, when He comes into our lives, produces fruit. Beautiful fruit. Wonderful fruit. Completely different from what we were before we become Christians. What are we before we become Christians? We are people who are ruled by the flesh. And the things Paul described there that have to do with our relationships with others are things like this. Enmity, which means hatred. Strife. Jealousy. Fits of angers. Anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envying. You know any people like that? What's their problem? Well, one answer is they don't have the Holy Spirit. They're still ruled by the flesh. But when we are born again, when we are regenerated, when we experience saving grace, when we experience true conversion... The Holy Spirit comes into our lives. The third person of the Trinity literally comes into our lives, dwells within us, produces fruit. 
And one of those fruits is gentleness. How much of a theologian do you have to be to answer the question, where does it come from when you read the phrase, but the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness? Do you have to be a rocket science theologian to say, hmm, it sounds like it comes from one of the persons in the Trinity. Sounds like it comes from God. Exactly. That's the origin of humility. God is the origin of humility. Now, another passage closely related to this, if you just turn to James chapter 3, and I don't think we're going to be turning to either any other or many other passages, but just go to James for one moment, and I want you to notice a passage that makes the same truth very clear. It wasn't so many um, months back that I tried to do an exposition of this extremely practical book. And if you come to chapter 3, I would have you notice, beginning with verse 13, what am I trying to demonstrate? What I, well, I'm trying to answer the question, where does humility originate? And we've seen from Galatians 5 that it comes from God. It's especially the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Now notice, another contrast. Verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. There's the key phrase, the meekness of wisdom. There is a kind of wisdom that produces meekness which shows itself in the way you live. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works. By his good conduct. Well, what produces that kind of conduct? Wisdom. And what is one of the fruits of this wisdom, James, that you're speaking about? Meekness. The meekness of wisdom. And then he thinks now of those of us who uh, perhaps are not yet converted. And he says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Uh, you don't have any grounds to claim you're a Christian this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. Wait a minute now. That's an interesting expression. This wisdom that uh, produces meekness has a source possibly from above. Oh, yes. Because the kind of wisdom that isn't characterized by this does not come down from above. Verse 15. So if it doesn't come down from above, there must be a wisdom that does come down from above. So he says in verse 15, it doesn't come down from above. It is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder of every vile and every vile practice. But... Another one of those wonderful contrasts that Justin was speaking of. But the wisdom from above. From where? From above. What's my question for this sermon? Where does true humility originate? The wisdom that comes from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. You say, well, I don't see the word humility. No, the word humility isn't in there. But do you see humility there? Have you ever in your life met a person who is pure and peaceable and gentle and open to reason and full of mercy and good fruits and impartial and sincere who wasn't humble? It's impossible. In one sense, humility is all over this passage. We don't have to have the exact word. But we do have the word gentle, so closely related to it. Where does this grace originate? It originates with God. It comes down from God. 
Now, who are the people that have the fruit of the Spirit? Who are the people who possess the wisdom that comes from above? The answer to that question, I think I've already given, but I'm just going to say it again. It is those who have been born again. It's those who have been regenerated. So children, if dad and mom or either of them ask you a question later today and they say, and it's on the back sheet, the first question is, what did Pastor Ted preach about? You better say, boys and girls, he preached about humility. And then if dad or mom pursue it just a little further and, and he, they say to you, well, what, what was he trying to help us understand about humility? Children, answer this. He was trying to help us understand where it comes from. Where did Pastor Ted say it comes from? Well, he said that it comes from above. He said that it's the fruit of the Spirit. And one more question. If they say to you, who has the Holy Spirit? Say to mom and dad, those who have been born. Boys and girls, you need to be born again. You need to be born again. A big word is you need to be regenerated. You need to be brought back to life. And only God can do that. And you need to flee to Jesus Christ and trust Him for that. You need to be born again. Because if you are born again, this means spiritually, not physically, but spiritually, you will have the Holy Spirit in your life And that Holy Spirit will begin to produce many beautiful fruits. And one of those fruits will be humility. And you won't always be thinking you're better than your brother or your sister. Or smarter than dad and mom. Or more talented than your friends at school. And you certainly won't believe that you can make it to God on your own righteousness. You will realize, I should be in hell right now. But Jesus died for my sins. And the Holy Spirit lives within me. I hope mom and dad ask those questions. That's why they're on the back of the sheet. And you can ask many more. So the answer, my theological answer to our question is those who this this gift comes through the salvation experience. In our new birth. And you know what? In receiving what the book of Ezekiel calls a new heart. The disposition and attitude and spirit of humility is planted. It's a gift. I can't turn us to Ezekiel 36, but you um, who know your Bible... Remember that God says, I'll give you a new heart. I know that he's talking first to the nation of Israel, but this is analogous to what happens in conversion. I'm going to take out your heart of stone. It's cold, it's hard, it's dead. And I'm going to graciously give you a heart of flesh that will be warm and soft and alive. And I'm going to put a new spirit within you. And then, this is what I want you to hear, dear people, especially the adults who can understand this. If you follow that passage through, it goes on to say this. And I know that the Lord is speaking first to ethnic Israel. I've already said that. He's talking to the nation of Israel in its first application. But the spiritual principle in this verse that I'm going to quote for you is applicable to spiritual Israel. That is, those of us who have become a part of the true people of God by salvation. This is what verse 31 of Ezekiel 36 says. Then, when's then? After I have given you a new heart. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good And you will loathe yourselves. That's an old word, loathe. It means despise and hate what you were in and of yourself. You will look back on your pre-converted life and you will say, I hate who I was. I hate it. I hate the remnants of those sins that are still in my life. They don't rule like they used to rule, but the remnants are still there. I hate them. I loathe it. I loathe what I was like before I was a Christian. 
Every true Christian should say that. What is loathing what your previous iniquities except looking upon all of that with the profoundest humility? Is there a Christian among us this morning who's proud of the way you used to live before you were saved? Of course not. That's a ridiculous question. I'm ashamed of the way that I used to live before I was a Christian. And it's that present persuasion that you're so unworthy of the grace of God and that you were so vile before you were saved that enables you to join the Apostle Paul and say, I am the chief of sinners. No, Paul, not you. And notice, Paul didn't say, I used to be. He said, I still am the chief of sinners. Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 15 of his first letter and says, I am the least of the apostles. And then he gives the reason. You know what the reason is? Because I persecuted the church. Paul, you should forget all about that stuff. Can't you get over your previous converted life, your pre-converted life? Get over it, man. Forget about that stuff. Don't get your mind back on that stuff. If we said that to Paul, he'd say, are you kidding me? Forget what I did to my Savior and to His people before I was saved? Don't you remember where I was going that day on the road to Damascus? Don't you remember what was in my heart, the malice I had toward Christ? I didn't believe He was really the Savior. And toward those followers, I was a horrible sinner. I'm guilty of the death of Christians. You want me to forget that? You're dreaming, man. I'll never forget that. I say with David, my sins are ever before me. And by the way, one old Puritan said, God will never put them behind you until you're able to say they're ever before me. And some of us know what it's like to remember. Most of us know to one degree or another what it's like to remember what we used to be. And it produces profound humility in our hearts. And Paul goes on later to say, guess what? I'm not only the least of the apostles, I'm the least of all the saints. Paul, you're overly humble. Get over your, your humility. You don't have a good self-esteem. You, you need to work on that, man. So how does this happen practically in our lives? I, I can only say this because, again, I've gone longer than I wanted to go. So here it is. First, God reveals to us, and this is all in Romans, and this is what Pastor Sam has opened up to us in, in some respect. It may not have always been the main point of the sermons, but, man, it's been there, starting with chapter 1. Here's what God does. He reveals His wrath. And, he, and we see, I'm in big trouble. I am under the wrath of a holy and just God because He reveals our sinfulness in breaking His laws. Romans 3.20 For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And then He reveals to us in the Gospel which we sang about this morning the beauty of the righteousness of Christ. Romans chapter 3 and verse 21 and He reveals to us this righteousness in the Gospel. Romans 1.16 And if I can go to another passage, He does something in our hearts spiritually by the help of the Holy Spirit. He says, let light shine. God shines into our hearts and gives us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He reveals the glory of God. And in another place, the Apostle Paul puts it like this. He said, when it pleased God to reveal His Son in me. That's in Galatians 1.16. This is how it happens. I'm telling you how it happens. I explained it theologically. It comes from the new birth. It comes from above. Now I'm telling you sequentially. That is how it happens in order. God in His own perfect time shows us who He is in His glory and His beauty. God in His own perfect time shows us who we are in all of our dreadful sinness. God in His perfect time and grace shows us the beauty of Jesus Christ and what He did for sinners. And He opens our understandings and we see that He's my only hope. And He enables us to flee from the wrath to come to Jesus. And then we step back and we give our testimonies and people say, well, what happened to you? And you say, I was born again. I was converted. God showed me my need of Christ. Now I have the Holy Spirit produced producing in me humility. If people ever ask you, why are you humble? Now can you answer? Well, surely you could have answered before. I hope you can answer better now. Are you kidding me? <laughs> why am I humble? You don't know what I was like. God had mercy on me. God saved my soul. And He's showing more and more and more what He saved me from. 
but you're so gifted, you're so useful, you, you really do have some extraordinary gifts. And you say, no, haven't you read 1 Corinthians 5, 7? Paul asked the question, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you act as though you didn't receive it? Any gifts I have are a gift from God. I can take no credit for them. I can't be proud of all my gifts. I think other people's gifts are greater than mine. But if I have any gifts at all, they're from God. And the whole of the Christian life is God just taking us from degree to degree to greater degree to greater degree of humility. You know why? Because He wants to make us like His Son. And His Son said, learn from me because I am gentle and lowly in heart. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that the ultimate goal of predestination is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Dear people, we have a humble yet reigning, glorious, sovereign, omnipotent Savior. He's majestic in every possible way. Infinitely majestic. But at the same time, there abides in the heart of our blessed Savior humility, meekness, gentleness. And He wants us to be like Him. And pride makes us so blind. So blind. I was thinking about it this week. You know, I was thinking about an analogy. By the way, Dave, I'm sorry. I've just lost our last hymn. Forgive me. But I'm getting us out of here before noon. I'm getting us out of here by five till. You know what You know what pride's like? Pride makes you blind. It makes you blind. And whenever we as pastors have to talk to people about our pride or talk to one another about our pride, and we do, the biggest challenge is proud people can't see their pride. You're blind. It's like somebody's got a big boil on their nose. I mean, it's sticking out almost three-quarters of an inch. It's way out there. It's red. It looks like it's going to burst. And you say to your friend, wow, what happened to you? They say, what do you mean? I mean, I'm talking about that thing on your nose. I don't have anything on my nose. Man, come here. Come, look at, come over here. Look in this mirror, man. Look. You want me to touch it for you? Look. And the guy looks in the mirror and says, I don't see anything. That's exactly what pride does to us. When our wives talk to us about our pride, as husbands we say, I don't see it. It's not pride. When our husbands talk to the wives about it, they don't see it. Pride makes you blind. Pride makes you deaf. Pride makes your brain malfunction. You can't see it. You just can't see it. But grace opens your eyes and you say, that thing's bigger than I thought it was. Man, that's really bad, isn't it? Thank you for helping me to see that. Wow, I need to deal with that. Thank you. Thank you. Spurgeon put it like this about how we should feel about ourselves. He says to his people in a sermon, I imagine there may be some of you ready to say, Sir, I am nothing. Sounds good, doesn't it? Sir, I am nothing. Then I shall reply, says Mr. Spurgeon, you are a young Christian. There will be others of you who will say, Sir, I am less than nothing. And I shall say to you, you are an old Christian. For the older Christians get, the less they become in their own esteem. And one more quote by Spurgeon from a sermon. He said, when you are a half of an inch above the ground, you are that half inch too high. Your place is to be nothing. So, if we have even a modicum, just a tiny portion of humility, dear brothers and sisters, it should humble us further to know and remember how we got it. I don't, I'm not suggesting that we go out of here saying, well, I don't have any humility. Come on, look at your conversion experience. You, you ought to be able to say, I'm not as humble as I ought to be, but listen, man, God humbled me big time when I got saved, and He's still working on me. I got way too much pride, but yes, He has implanted the wonderful gift of humility. And when you think about He has implanted, He has implanted, He made me humble, it should make you more humble yet. Think frequently on that, dear soul. 
and seek for more and more of the grace. And if you're quite sure that you don't have any of this true humility that I've been talking about this morning, you who are unconverted, I plead with you, go to the cross of Jesus Christ. Go there where a humble Savior died to make proud people humble. Go to the cross of Jesus Christ. And Dad and Mom, you will see a question on the back sheet where you are to, I hope, ask your children, what does it mean to go to the cross? It means, you tell them what it means, but it means, I can't pay for my sins. Only one can pay for my sins. I'm a wretched, vile sinner. I'm going to split hell wide open if Jesus doesn't forgive me. I'm running to Jesus. I'm fleeing to Jesus. I'm calling Him on Jesus. I'm falling at the foot of the cross. Mount Sinai, at the foot of Mount Sinai, I felt horror and terror and fear of the judgment of God. And now I flee to Mount Calvary and I bow down at the foot of the cross. Jesus, save me! That's what it means to go to the cross, boys and girls. Mom and Dad maybe will help you understand that better. My counsel to all the unconverted then is to go to the cross, go to Christ, go to the One who is gentle and lowly of heart and He's never turned down a broken-hearted, humbled, prostate sinner. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to understand better that You are the author of all true saving humility that none of us are humble by nature. Help us to look carefully into our lives and to be sure that what we think is humility really is humility and not the production of some superficial spiritual experience. Lord, the, the humblest of us here, whoever that person is, is woefully short of the humility that he or she ought to have. Help us. May Heritage Baptist Church be the most humble church in Owensboro. And we believe that if you make us to be such, we will not think we are the most humble church in Owensboro. God, you cannot do that unless you make each of us individually humble. Help us. And may all of us flee again and again and again to our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ for the atonement we need for our pride. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.